0: This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky.
1: The coronavirus pandemic has hit the nation's nursing homes particularly hard. While not all states are keeping track, we do know of thousands of deaths at nursing homes and adult care facilities around the country related to COVID-19. The Justice Department is now investigating Soldiers' Home in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Nearly 50 residents have died. And in New Jersey, the Attorney General's office is investigating Andover's Subacute and Rehabilitation Center. 68 residents have died, and bodies were piled up in a makeshift morgue. Today, Governor Phil Murphy called that an outrage.
2: New Jerseyans living in our long-term care facilities deserve to be cared for with respect, compassion, and dignity. We can and must do better.
1: Beth Ganji, whose uncle Lawrence Togno was among the residents who died, joins us now from her home in Florida. And Beth, it took your own persistence to get some answers.
3: When he died, I thought it was suspicious. And I decided that I was going to call the facility myself to try and get some answers.
1: And what did you learn?
3: I learned, um, well, I have a whole timeline of, of what had happened from the time that my uncle was taken to the hospital on April 2nd with a so-called fever and was returned four hours later to Andover. And what I was told was that while he was in the hospital, he, uh, along with his fever, which was 102.6, he also had a cough. And when he got there, they said his O2 saturation was at 90%. So he was put on three liters of oxygen via nasal cannula. Um, He was then returned Uh, 6.30 a.m. on 4-2 back to Andover, they called my father and said that everything was fine, that the hospital had sent him back. So fast forward four days to the 6th, my dad gets a call from Andover at 10.15 a.m. in the morning saying that Lawrence is dead.
1: You go from April 2nd, everything's fine, four days later, your uncle's dead.
3: That is correct.
1: And it seems pretty obvious he had coronavirus.
3: Um, I, I guess, I mean, I had asked a lot of questions. We, we were never told that he had been tested or that he was positive. They just told my father that he had been taken to the hospital with a fever and that was it. My uncle had no pre-existing conditions that we knew of other than his mental health issue. And that's why he was there. He had been there for over 10 years. All we knew at this point was that he had been taken to the hospital with a fever and now he's dead. So my dad, completely taken by surprise and overcome with sadness, you know, this is his last living brother, and now he's gone with no explanation from anybody at Andover.
1: So you started investigating yourself.
3: Well, up until this point, they told us nothing. They, they didn't tell us that he had died from COVID. They didn't, say, they didn't say anything. And like I said, my dad didn't really know what questions to ask. So, so basically I asked her what happened between 4-2 and 4-6 the day he died. And she said, everything was fine. There's no notes. And I'm like, what do you mean there are no notes? You know, there has to be daily notes. And she basically said, there's no notes. So I said, you're telling me that nobody checked on my uncle from the time he came back to the hospital to the day he died? And her reply is, there are no notes. Basically, it took them three hours to call my father to tell him that his brother had passed away. And she didn't know why it took so long. I basically feel like, you know, this is totally unacceptable. And they never even said he had been tested. Um, We had no idea that he had COVID. And the caregivers, you know, really owe it to the patients to give them the best possible care and to keep the family in the loop. And this didn't happen. So my uncle died basically with no care, no help, and more than likely no oxygen. Because I feel like his oxygen level, if it was not good at the hospital, if he had COVID, then it was not good at the home either.
1: Is it your sense that they were simply overwhelmed by the sheer amount of death? We now know 68 people have died at that nursing home.
3: Um, You know, what? I'm sure they're overwhelmed just as as the country is overwhelmed. Um, But I don't think I think that if you're in that situation, you know, ask for help or find other ways or at least, you know, at least call the family. I just I feel like nobody should have to die alone. You know, and I feel like my uncle definitely died alone, especially if he had been dead for several hours prior to them finding him.
1: This is just heartbreaking.
3: It's very heartbreaking. And it's, it, I'm, I feel bad for, I feel bad for every family throughout the country. I feel really bad for people who are in homes, nursing homes, rehabilitation centers, who can't see their families anyway. Nobody can go in there to, to, to see them. And then to have something like this happen and you know not even have the, the people who are supposed to be caring for your loved one aren't doing that
1: Beth Gangi speaking to us from her home in Florida about the death of her uncle Lawrence Togno at Andover Subacute and Rehabilitation Center where dozens of residents have died of coronavirus the owner told us in a statement he's working around the clock on safety of residents and staff the reach of this virus is well beyond clusters and death tolls it touches everything from what we wear to how we feed ourselves. We've seen millions of gallons of spilled milk, fields of vegetables plowed to mulch, chickens and livestock culled, all while many Americans worry about not being able to find food at the store or afford it at all. Dan Horan is the founder and president of Five Acre Farms, which works with farms in the Northeast to get their products into grocery stores, restaurants, and food shops. Dan, coronavirus has infected the nation's food chain.
2: Just very broadly, 50% of meals are eaten outside of the home pre-corona and 50% are in. Uh, Eggs, everyone loves, you know, bacon, egg and cheese at the diner. Um, And now there's a pandemic, all that's closed. And in fact, eggs are something that people know how to make fairly easily. So now translate that to where do I buy eggs? I buy eggs at the supermarket. I run to the supermarket to buy eggs and there's none left. Uh, It's because the other half of the eggs were not packed in cartons. They were packed uh, in large trays. And the people that deliver to diners, who deliver to restaurants, to food carts, are not the same people that deliver to supermarkets.
1: We seem to be in this really strange place where there's plenty of food supply. And yet we see these images of farmers plowing fields of lettuce and and Wisconsin dairy farmers dumping untold gallons of milk. How can that be?
2: Yeah. So let's say uh, I'm a farmer and I have the uh, Shake Shack contract to provide lettuce. Pick a big Applebee's, Buffalo Wild Wings, any place that sells a ton of burgers that has lettuce and tomato, and I provide them their, their vegetables. Uh, I, I, I have corporate contracts to, to sell into universities. That's all my green beans. It's a great market. And now that's closed. And they always buy them in 50 pound bags. Well, now I only sell carrots in 50 pound bags because that's the only size they want. So in my inventory, the only thing I have are large cellophane bags. You know, no one cares how the carrots look because it's just how they taste. That's all that matters. But you put that into a retail setting, doesn't work. So, I let's say I'm let's say I'm a, I'm a dairy farmer and I have a big contract with schools. I'm selling all my milk in five gallon bags. I don't need jugs. I sell five gallon bags. I sell half pints because that's what the third graders drink. Right now, you can't sell half. I know. Mean,
1: right. Is there no way, somehow, for for those farmers or for geez, someone to figure out how to get that product to people who really need food right now?
2: So there is a way, and that's happening. There are a lot of efforts going towards trying to get food into people's hands um, and into food kitchens, just a, a you know a, a duty. Every, if you have extra food and you can't sell it, you need to give it away. And there are lots of places to do that. Some items are harder than others. I would say, I can tell you that milk is very hard to donate because milk has to be kept under 40 degrees at all times. Otherwise you are creating an additional problem. That is not true with many, many other things. It's true with chicken. It's not true with fruits and vegetables. They might be a little soft, soggy, even cheese. Okay, so it's got a little, a little mold on it. You can scrape that off. It's not gonna kill you. There's a lot of food out there. And there's a lot of food that's trapped in the system right now that was already picked and harvested and shipped that really should find a way to people that need it.
1: Dan Haran at Five Acre Farms. ABC News has reviewed a FEMA document that said dairy product demand has fallen by as much as 15 percent due to retail purchase limits and food service closures. Coming up, we're going to speak to Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special continues after this.
0: You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
4: And right here, as always, ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton, is with us. And Dr. Ashton, we have heard that COVID-19 can cause pneumonia and a lung failure called ARDS. But you say there's now new information that's providing even more clues.
5: Yes, Amy, so let's go through some mini medical school here because this is really important clinical information. Typically, when we have other cases of pneumonia and respiratory failure, as you said, we call it ARDS, the lungs get stiff, right? What, stiff lungs can't expand and contract and move air. You need two things to oxygenate our blood. You need air, ventilation, and you need blood flow. What we're seeing with coronavirus is a viral pneumonia that affects both lungs. So it's bilateral, which is a little unusual at the same time. And patients who are critically ill with coronavirus pneumonia tend to have low blood oxygen levels. So that's the picture that we're seeing. Okay, but the picture is perhaps a little different. What are doctors now seeing that just isn't lining up? Well, there was just a report in a medical journal based on the Italian experience of patients with this ARDS picture. And there's something very unusual, very odd clinically that doctors are seeing. They're seeing patients who are put on ventilators with ARDS. And instead of their lungs being stiff, which is what we normally see in patients with ARDS, this is not the typical picture. Their lungs are moving. So they have what we call compliance, but their blood oxygen level is still low. And typically, these patients, when they're on ventilators, are getting very high pressures on those machines. The thinking now, and we're not sure, is that that high pressure may, in fact, do more damage. The ventilators obviously are useful in buying us more time. And you've seen and we've talked about placing people on their bellies, we, we call proning. There does seem to be some evidence that that may give some mild or modest benefit. So
4: then the big question, are ventilators the best treatment for these critically ill COVID-19
5: patients? Well, that's the interesting thing that critical care specialists and pulmonologists are looking at. And I spoke to a top pulmonologist last night who says, we don't really know what the best treatment for critically ill patients with COVID-19 is. Um, we still need to figure out why their lungs are able to move air, but their blood oxygen level is still low. So in medicine, we call that a ventilation perfusion mismatch. And that is a big mystery right now with how this virus is affecting people.
4: Okay. Well, Dr. Jen Ashton, we will be checking in with you in just a bit.
6: We turn now to ABC's Kira Phillips, though, in Washington, D.C., with all of today's latest headlines. Hi, Amy. And here's some of the developments that we are working on for you from here right now. The Treasury Secretary and Small Business Administration are urging Congress to approve more funding for the Paycheck Protection Program. The SBA now saying it will not be able to accept new loan applications or issue approvals due to a funding lapse. The SBA says more than 1.6 million applications have been approved, totaling more than $339 billion. And this headline today from Starbucks, ABC's Rebecca Jarvis reporting that the company has sent a letter to employees outlining plans for reopening stores. The CEO saying that the plan will emphasize prioritizing the health and well-being of the company's partners and customers. And a gracious gesture from SNL's Michael Che, the actor announcing on Instagram that he is picking up the payment of one month's rent for all 160 public housing tenants at his late grandmother's residence. During last weekend's episode of SNL, the Weekend Update co-host revealed that she died from complications from COVID-19. What a tribute to his grandmother.
4: We appreciate that. Kira, thank you. You Well, there are now nearly 2,300 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state of Kentucky and at least 121 deaths. Here to talk about what's happening on the front lines and how his state is combating the virus, we have Governor Andy Bashar with us. And Governor, you've gotten bipartisan praise for your daily briefings on the pandemic. But yesterday... That briefing was interrupted by protesters who want Kentucky to reopen for business. You've said your job isn't to make the popular decision, but the right one. How do you respond to those protesters?
7: Well, thank you for having me. And let me start by saying what I say every day to Kentuckians at five and now to all Americans, that we will get through this and we will get through this together. Uh, You know, yesterday we had a a couple dozen people uh, that might uh, disagree and and dangerously for, for what they're suggesting but we have millions of Kentuckians that have banded together, that believe that it is our duty as Kentuckians and as patriotic Americans to protect one another. We talk about battling this coronavirus and social distancing as the test of our humanity. Can we put other people's lives ahead of our personal financial self-interest? And let me tell you, in Kentucky, we are flattening that curve. We are beating every projection and every model that's been out there. And what that means is we are saving people's lives. Now, not everybody may get that. There may be some that just can't realize that their their, uh, engagement in a mass gathering might kill someone that they have never met. But my job is to protect my people. And so we're gonna continue uh, to take the steps that we need to. And look, I believe that we have more support for our actions across Kentucky than I've ever seen in my lifetime. We don't have Democrats. We don't have Republicans. We just have Americans and Kentuckians versus this coronavirus.
4: Now, Governor Brashar, you recently announced that Kentucky is partnering with Kroger to launch free drive through COVID-19 testing across the state. So tell us who's eligible for those tests and how do people register? But we're really excited
7: about this partnership. When we look at the ways that we uh, address the coronavirus, it's social distancing, it's increasing our healthcare care capacity, and then it's testing. And Kroger um, came to us and said we're willing to, to do the testing and provide the personal protective uh, equipment. And the state uh, has come through with the testing kits um, and, and ultimately a contract with a Kentucky lab uh, that has really ramped up and, and has been a very uh, big help. We're gonna have four of these locations up all across the state. Uh, you still have to prioritize because there still aren't enough testing resources out there. So it's going to be first responders. It's going to be our vulnerable population, people over uh, 65 or that have heart, lung or, or kidney disease. We have a lot of diabetics in Kentucky. So this is a disease that can truly prey uh, and be deadly on, on, on my people. Uh, and then those that are, are showing symptoms. Uh, we have two facilities open right now that'll expand to four uh, on uh, this next tuesday Uh, and it's going to make sure we have testing all across our state because we've got some rural communities that have been hit just as hard as our urban communities and my job as governor is to try to provide resources out there for everyone.
4: Yeah, and speaking of those resources, we have seen, and this is a, an unfortunate statistic we have seen across this country, African-Americans yes. in your state are also dying at two and a half times the rate as the rest of your state. What are you doing as governor to prevent more deaths from COVID-19?
7: Well, first, let me say our, our disproportionate rate of, of deaths uh, for, for blacks and African-Americans is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, it, while it is based on hundreds of, of years of inequality and unequal access to, to health care and, and people paying for that now, uh, despite it, it it absolutely not being their fault, it being a, a government's fault that over hundreds of years hasn't provided that uh, equality of, of access, we, we have uh, more people in that community dying, uh, at least with, by the rate, you know, uh, as compared to the rest of the state. It is not right. So we're working right now on making sure uh, that we can get some of these um, uh, drive-thru facilities in our major African-American communities in our two largest urban centers. I've been working on that, and I hope by uh, next week to, to have an announcement on that. Also getting out more uh, hand sanitizers, more masks, and then making sure that um, we are continuing to communicate um, the, the different ways that we can prevent ourselves from from getting this disease, this virus, but also how we can prevent it from spreading to others. And I hope When we come out uh, of this virus, and we will, uh, we will beat it, uh, that we finally uh, start addressing uh, this type of inequality and many others. If we're going to pass this test of humanity, and we will, and we're going to be better people coming out of this, and I hope we are, that it's time that we step up and make sure the next time we have a pandemic that this is absolutely not the case. We've got to be committed.
4: Governor Andy Beshear, thank you so much for being here today and thank you for your leadership. We appreciate it.
7: Thank you. God bless.
4: And there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. Springing into survival mode, the company teaming up with workers to find innovative ways to navigate these stormy economic times. We'll be right back.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. Listening to an ABC News special, COVID 19 What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
4: You may remember Dan Price, the founder and CEO of Gravity Payments. Back in 2015, he made headlines because he vowed to pay his workers a minimum of $70,000 a year and even slashed his own salary. But now those employees are giving back and making huge sacrifices. Dan is here with us to explain more on how his credit card processing company is trimming costs to prevent layoffs during this coronavirus pandemic. Thanks so much for being with us, Dan. And uh, I got to tell you, this is pretty remarkable. I want to ask you how it feels to know that 98% of your employees voluntarily took a temporary pay cut.
8: You know, it's very humbling. Um, I started this company because I met a coffee shop owner named Heather, and she was paying way too much money just to get paid by a credit card. And I built the company to try to help small businesses And to think that now there's 200 people that work here that are willing to put themselves in harm's way to stick up for those small businesses that are suffering right now, that's very humbling and very gratifying.
4: Yeah, Can you give us a sense of just how much of a pay cut your employees are taking?
8: Yeah, sure. So out of 200 people, we had 10 people asked to cut their pay completely to zero. Um, We had between two and three dozen say they wanted to take at least a 50 percent pay cut. I want to emphasize that this was organized by the employees and it was all on an individual anonymous basis. So no one knows what anyone else uh, took in terms of a pay cut. And part of the proof of that is we had 2% of people that opted not to take a pay cut. They're still at the company. Everything's right with them. And we also had some people who maybe took a 5% pay cut, but they just had a spouse that lost a job. So they went from two incomes to one. So we have a tremendous amount of diversity. And what unifies us is as much as we're hurting, there are small businesses all over America right now, restaurants, dentists, orthodontists, veterinarians we want to help those small businesses we all need unite together to do that to provide innovative solutions for them and in order to do that we had to do this to stay uh to stay sustainable
4: yeah and speaking to that talk about the impact of your employees taking these pay cuts because if they would not have volunteered to do this what would have happened to your company
8: so we were losing all of a sudden we lost 55 percent of our revenue because our revenue is a function of small business revenue And we were losing $1.5 million a month. We had maybe three, four, five months to survive before we'd be out. This doesn't get us to break even. We're still losing a half million, but our employees unifying around this. What also is great is outside of the financial part, a lot of employees have stepped up and said, hey, I want to start a new business line. I want to start a new solution. Because the type of digital advantage that these huge technology companies have over independent small businesses is part of why small businesses are hurt the hardest. Mm -hmm. So we used to launch two or three new ideas that would get some of these businesses. And we've launched maybe five, six just in the last few weeks to help businesses be able to cope not only with COVID-19, but to be ready to accept payment, ready to engage in commerce via a cell phone via text message, via email, via e-commerce, so that they can keep up with the larger businesses.
4: That's remarkable. Any advice you would give other businesses during this time?
8: Fight for those small wins. Think Think long term. Think about How do you want to be seen after you come out of this? If you can come out of this crisis with your integrity intact, you will be a very rare breed. But Mm. for a lot of those small businesses out there, they're just doing everything they can to survive. So fighting for those little small wins. For some businesses, it might mean being able to keep three employees instead of two employees. So just trying to get every dollar of revenue in and trying to save where you can without hurting your community.
4: Well, Dan Price, thank you for your help in that fight for so many. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now, and we'll get straight to the first question. Can you explain the term herd
5: immunity in relation to coronavirus? Great question, and we're going to be hearing a lot about this in the next couple of months and probably year, but herd immunity refers to the percentage of a population who's been exposed usually via a vaccine, but sometimes naturally to an infection, generally, in order to have herd immunity, you need about 70 to 90 percent of a population vaccinated or infected. And then once that happens, there's really nowhere for the infection to go. So we are a long ways away from that. Epidemiologists are estimating that only about you know as high as maybe five percent of the world's population has been infected with this, so um, we're we're not there yet and by the way, if it happened naturally there would be a lot of deaths unfortunately mm, so okay. that's why we need the vaccine yep that's good to know this next question a lot of people I think will be
4: curious about the answer to it because people are trying to find a way to safely maybe even just see a friend or a loved one so the question is if you meet with a friend in your yard and you're able to stay six feet away is it okay not to wear a mask while you're together.
5: No one knows, Amy. And again, it's so important as we live in this new reality to understand what we know and what we don't know. We think that six feet of separation is adequate to prevent the majority of these viral particles from reaching us in the air. But that's just an estimate. You know, it depends on wind. It depends on weather. It depends on a whole bunch of things that no one really has an answer to right now. So that's why the CDC is recommending that you still cover your nose and mouth even if you're six feet apart from a friend
4: all right better safe than sorry as always next question what about using face shields that are being sold can I wear those instead of a mask when shopping for groceries
5: Probably not. Again, um, this is all uncharted territory, but those face shields, remember, are really just plastic visors that are largely protecting the eyes, which are important to protect, and partially the nose. But if you breathe, laugh, cough, sneeze, talk, you can still release viral particles from your nose and mouth uh, into the environment. So if you want to cover your eyes, that's fine. But the recommendation is that you cover your nose and mouth with some piece of cloth or fabric.
4: All right. Next question. Does the blood of a deceased COVID-19 patient contain antibodies which can be
5: used? Part of the antibody mystery, Amy, you know, we think that whenever we're exposed to an infection, our body mounts an immune response. We call those antibodies. When those appear depends on the time course of the illness and that antibody response. We don't know what that is for sure with COVID-19. But remember, when someone passes away, um, you know, their blood cells and every organ system in their body literally has minutes of survival time. So mm. I wouldn't expect to see that blood being used um, in any way other than research anytime soon.
4: All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, we appreciate those incredible answers. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. And when we come back, Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg here to share her insights on the power of what she calls collective resilience through these tough times. We'll be right back.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
4: Well, as millions of Americans continue to stay home, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg has decided to release a free excerpt of her 2017 bestseller, Option B, facing adversity, building resilience, and finding joy. And here to discuss the book's relevance during this pandemic is the one and only Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl, thanks so much for being with us. And we're actually just learning that Facebook is now announcing some new steps to combat COVID 19 related misinformation that's out there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
9: Yes, thanks for having me, Amy. And um, thinking of everyone out there, as we all are during these really troubled times. So making sure that people are getting accurate information on coronavirus has been our top priority since the beginning of this. And so we announced today three things, that we've now directed 2 billion people to official health resources around the world so they can see what's really happening. We have a COVID information center and we've put in a get the facts portion so that people could see some of the false information that our third-party fact checkers have debunked. And the third thing is that for people who have liked or reacted or maybe commented on information we think it may be false in the past, we're putting notices on top of their newsfeed, which is directing them to official information. We are just doing our part to make sure that everyone gets. Accurate information yep. on this virus, which and that is, is so important, so
4: helpful yeah. during these times, of course. And you're here to talk about Option B. It was originally released back in 2017. Tell us why you're releasing a portion of it for free right now in these times.
9: I wrote Option B after I lost my husband, and I turned to my friend Adam Grant, psychologist and professor, and asked him, "How much resilience do I have? Am I going to make it?" And he said, "That's the wrong question. Resilience is a muscle, and we build it." And the book Option B is about how we build resilience in ourselves and others through life's challenges. And this is the most challenging time for everyone, certainly in our lifetimes. I hope, I hope forever. But people are facing real loss. We lost someone in my family. It's been super sad. People are facing the risk of death, sick family members, huge economic challenges. And Option B is how we build resilience. So we're releasing part of it. Um, to try to help. And we wrote an intro about the, you know, situation we face right now.
4: Yeah, and I know, Cheryl, obviously option B is such a personal story for you with your husband's loss. And a lot of people are out there trying to figure out how they can help help loved ones or even themselves while grieving someone uh, that they've lost to coronavirus. What helped you most while you were grieving?
9: What helped me most was what psychologists call the three Ps, remembering that there are three traps that we have to make sure we don't get in so that we can recover. Personalization, don't blame yourself. So many people I've heard from are saying, I feel lonely, I'm not doing enough, feeling bad about themselves in this situation. Self-compassion, don't blame yourself. Two is pervasiveness. You know, one of the things Adam said to me when I lost Dave, my husband, is he said one day, it could be worse. I said, what do you mean it could be worse? My husband just died suddenly. He said, your husband could have had that cardiac arrhythmia driving your children. And in that moment, I thought, oh, my God, my kids are alive. I'm fine. Even in our family, we face death. There's so much good. My fiance, Tom, and I look at each other, and we know we're healthy. Even in the hardest of situations, you can find a way to find something that you're still grateful for or even think about the things that could be worse, and that gratitude is so important. And then permanence. When you're going through something hard, there's a loss or a situation like this. It feels like it's going to go on forever. And right now it feels to all of us that way because no one knows where the end is in sight. But it won't. It won't. We know there will be a vaccine. We know there will be treatment. We know society will reopen. Remembering to not fall into those traps, yeah, no, I think, is the most helpful The thing.
4: three Ps, those are really powerful. I'll put a fourth P onto that. And I know <laughs> that you've also started the Option Be There
9: campaign. I love this. Tell me a little bit more about it. Well, this is about kicking the elephant out of the room when really hard things happen people are afraid to talk about them you know when my husband died i walked into a room and no one would speak people have cancer i watch it in the office people don't know what to say this is a time to kick that oh. elephant out of the room and be there for people we have um virtual cards you can send you know i know this sucks but we're going through it together we can't be together but we're in this together making sure that even the hardest situations people face, saying to someone, I know you have this virus, are you scared? Do you wanna talk about it rather than saying nothing? Yep. Being there for each other is about really addressing the concerns openly.
4: Oh, it's so important. I know you've been through the unthinkable. I've had my cancer diagnosis and saying something is always better than saying Mm -hmm. nothing. You could even say, I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but I'm there for you, and
9: I love you, and I care for you. Yeah. It's just those little moments, right, that mean everything. And I know you're suffering. I'm not going to ignore this and pretend it's fine. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be fine. We certainly appreciate you and your time, Cheryl Sandberg. Thanks. Thank you so much.
4: And a treat for Fixer Upper fans when we come back. What Joanna Gaines is up to with our Sarah Haynes. We have some ideas for creative Family Time while we're all stuck inside together. We'll be right back.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
4: And welcome back. With all of this extra quality family time, we asked ourselves, what new things can we try at home with our families? Well, Sarah Haynes, co-host of Strahan, Sarah, and Kiki, caught up with author of Magnolia Table, Volume 2, Joanna Gaines, to teach us a creative trick or two
10: since the entire world is experiencing this, it's interesting how we're all experiencing it a little different depending on where we're at. And I think I would say, you know, my three things that I've loved is getting in the kitchen and just making something, getting outside. And a lot of people, Hey, if you don't have a garden, even if it's on your terrace, creating something and then um, journaling has been really important for me. Just again, in times like this, and not that I've ever experienced anything like this, but I can tend to internally process a lot of things and yeah. just getting those thoughts out on paper, like getting it all out and at least getting it outside and then processing it like that has been really healthy for my mind. So to me, it's just doing something. Right. I love your; Yours are very healthy outlets. I think getting in the kitchen has been one I'm seeing from people. Uh, a lot of people more like me that are just the average Joe that don't cook a lot, that don't bake a lot, but yes. I've had so much fun doing that. We also love a family dance party because love we, that. Need, we need to find a way to get the kids worn out. Exactly. I love that. And then the third thing I would try to do is I need to journal more, but I also have tried meditating because you know, you talked about the spiraling. Yes. I think the staying yeah. present and being in the moment is such a, And we're forced to right now uh, handle it because you can't leave the house. So I guess the silver lining in all this is the gift of time. And I I know that there's going to be days where I feel like I've wasted a lot of that. But I hope at the end of all this that I've, you know, that a lot of these moments were moments that felt like gifts in spite of everything else happening. One thing that we're doing tonight, all the kids all week have been making their own movie and somehow editing it i don't know how they're doing this maybe iMovie or something and they're editing it so tonight it's like film night and we're watching all of their films tonight and so the Haynes family film festival <laughs> i like that our
4: film festival <laughs> i love it too all right our thanks to sarah haynes for that
5: and now we're going to turn to dr jen ashton for her final thoughts on this thursday dr jen Amy, I just read a really interesting article in Psychology Today all about the stages of grief that we are experiencing in this pandemic. And it's really grief about a lifestyle and roles in some cases that have been lost and uncertainty about the future, which can make it very difficult. Um, The key, as this article said, was to recognize and normalize and look forward. And as we do so, I wanted to focus on the last stage of grief, which is Acceptance, And even though these stages can be controversial, if we accept that for now this is the new norm, I think we can all find some positives and some opportunity in that. I couldn't agree more. Accept what
4: is, not what should be. That definitely can bring you some joy and some peace at the very least. Exactly. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you. And that is our show for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening.
0: ABC News, honored, winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news
5: choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times
10: best-selling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.